There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 25th of, I beg your pardon, the 20th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. I imagine that you've heard uh, if you have been sexually assaulted or rape and would like to talk to someone that you can speak to a trained counsellor 24 hours a day on the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's helpline free of charge. That number is 1-800-77-8888 and perhaps you've called one 1-800- yourself sometime in the last year or you might even know someone who's been assaulted and has called that number looking for help after becoming the victim of a sex crime. The Dublin Rape Crisis Centre has published its annual report this week and they say that last year a staggering 18,400 people contacted them. Let's speak to, to the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolene Blackwell, who's on the line. Uh, a very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. That amount of people really is staggering, and even by your standards, because it's a 31% increase on the number of calls you had on the previous year. Yeah, it, it, it is, Michael. It's the highest increase ever. It's the highest number ever, as far as we know, but it's certainly the highest increase because it's a jump of about 30% on the previous year. Now, some of those were calls back to people uh, along the way, but it was 8,400 contacts. And even if you take out the people we called back, it was still high, a quarter more than the previous year. And it's just like, oh, it's probably because there's an increase in demand generally as well. But when we launched our annual report yesterday, Michelle Grehan, our helpline manager, made the point that there were a couple of real spikes in the year as well. Um, this, this year we have uh, the trial uh, for the killing of Ashley Murphy going on. January of 2022 was when the, the killing took place. And, uh, and at that time, there was a real spike in people's concern, people just calling. You know, even if something didn't happen to them, they were so worried, they were so concerned. Some of them were so furious, they were really angry, um, that that caused a big spike. And then towards the end of 2022, that was was in response to a sort of a a real-time event. In 2022, uh, following the 
revelations of the Ryan brothers of abuse by the spirit and fathers in Blackrock College. That caused another a spike. And this time, a spike of a lot of people who hadn't said anything to anyone for decades and just felt the need to, to, to name the harm that was done to them mm. and to have someone recognise that. And that's where the helpline is. Great, you don't, you don't have to do any more than just call it or even use the web chat. Mm. And that contributed to the increase in numbers as well. And, you know, it's just a way of acknowledging for some people the harm that has happened maybe getting a bit of direction, a bit of help to to services as they need it. Mm. But for some people, it's just enough to call at a time where they're in a bad way themselves. Okay. Uh, and that, they've been, and they've been triggered were, by somebody else's story. Can you uh, explain yes. the psychology of that? Do you have any understanding of the psychology of how it is uh, that when one person tells their story of abuse, it prompts somebody else to disclose what happened to them decades ago for the first yes. time. Yes. And and uh, so just a health warning here, mm. and any of my therapists would give you the same one. I'm not a psychotherapist <laughs> by background, sure. but no. I do understand it now um, a bit uh, better than I did. And it is just when you think about sexual assault, when you think about sexual harassment, when you think about rape, all of these... Um, all of these uh, result from non-consensual sexual activity. Somebody does something that without the other person's consent. And the hurt in sexual uh, harm and sexual crime is very often not visible on the outside at all. There's no indication of it. The hurt is to the innermost person, to their dignity, to their psyche, to their to their innermost being and the hurt is a hurt that just lodges itself in memory and it stays there and the truth is that even up to quite recently maybe even in this day if something happens to somebody they will be convinced by what they know of our society by what their community tells them that the best thing to do is to say nothing to do nothing and what that's like is that's like if you broke a bone and didn't get it treated, it would set in a way that it would hurt you forever. And it's the same with with people's minds, with their memories, with their emotions, that their hurt is there. And hearing somebody else, hearing a situation that might be similar, hearing a reaction to a situation that might be similar, these are the things that can trigger somebody and make them feel make the, uh, remind them and bring back the pain to them again and the, and and it's it's no more than any other chronic pain that somebody has you it's often around the corner mm. you don't see it coming and that's why when you started this item with the helpline number that was very important because even as you and I are speaking there may be somebody listening who themselves just goes I'm I'm not you know I'm I'm just not feeling myself I could do with some help and the 24 hour helpline is set up by the state actually it's a state commissions Dublin Rape Crisis Centre to run it on behalf of all the people of Ireland that it's there with uh, with the web chat now, uh, with an interpretation service for people where English isn't their first language, because it's hard enough to talk about these things in your mm. first language, let alone if it's not your first language. Yeah. So 
Mm. We have those services now and they're there for people day and night. At least, you know, we all of them, there could be the very odd glitch uh, at a time where there's huge pressure on the line that someone would have to call back a second time. But for the mm. most part, that's the number of people we were able to talk to, to deal with. And, and they, you know, they, they do tell us and they, they do tell us it matters. Mm. They tell us that sometimes it's the only place that even a good family even people who know of the harm often aren't who you want to be talking to at a time when you're under pressure yourself. Yeah. And that's why uh, it's just, I think it's, we're so proud mm. of having that service and so proud of being able to deliver that level of support. And people sometimes call back again and again over the years, Michael. Some mm. people will only call once mm. and some people will call often we've as a, they need to. We've a very diverse population in this country these days and uh, that uh, is seen in the makeup of your callers. Most of them were Irish, 87%, uh, but you had callers from 64 different countries uh, to the helpline, one 800 over the course of 2022. Uh, but it is a staggering amount of calls from people who've been sexually assaulted. I suppose the other side of that story is that for every victim of a sexual assault, there is somebody who is responsible for that assault. Uh, who are these people? That's right. So they're, they're hidden in plain sight, uh, to use that phrase. They are, there is no, there's no uh, label that you can attach to someone and say, that looks like a sexual predator, that looks like uh, someone who would do harm. And less and less, but still, you will hear people say, that's such a decent person, they couldn't do that kind of thing. Well, the, the, the highest in our society have been found to be um, guilty of abusing power and using, <coughs> excuse me one second, <coughs> Sure, take Excusing your time. Yeah. that that abuse of that abuse of power is taken out by people who do know better, who should know better, but because they can abuse their power, they do and they get away with it. So there is no there is no area of society, there's no class of mm. people, there's no profession or trade where sexual predators cannot uh, uh, cannot be and what do you mean by power I mean are you talking about somebody's boss or uh, the power that they hold in the community or or what type of power does an abuser wield over a, a victim so there's a whole lot of ways that it can be done. So, for instance, you have people in positions of authority. Uh, we, as, as I said, uh, uh, during the year, during last year, we saw in relation to children who were abused by teachers in one of the poshest schools, in, in some of the poshest schools in Ireland and in some of the less posh ones as well, um, but where, where people were in a position of authority over children in particular, that's always an abuse of power. But even just in the workplace, people are afraid to say something, even if they're subject to regular sexual harassment. Um, in the community, people are afraid to call out people who are in positions of so-called risk respectability. Uh, but they're also afraid to call out people in their own family. Mm. Uh, it is where somebody can uh, abuse their power within a relationship. Mm. And that's why in, in our area, dealing with sexual violence, 
it's so closely connected to domestic violence as well, mm. where about one fifth of the clients who are coming in to us for therapy have uh, suffered the domestic violence of various sorts, emotional abuse, uh, financial abuse, physical violence along the way. So mm. so the, the level at which people can can make somebody else feel small, feel they have to do something they don't want to do. Um, human nature does actually test that every so often. We see it even apart from sexual violence. We see it in bullying as well, Michael. That you you can where where people can abuse power. They don't have to, and most people won't. But there are those who will take the opportunity to go further, to feel entitled to do something, whether or not the other person is consenting. And of course, in the area of sexual violence. That has been sort of, you know, it's only a hundred years ago mm. that, uh, that it left that women weren't treated as men's property. So were children. And, and in a sense, if you, if you have a piece of property, it's, it's, you know, you're allowed to use that piece of property pretty well as yeah. you want. Mm. So we're making progress. Obviously, we're making a lot of progress yeah. in recognising equality, but in this area, we mm. still have a distance to go. Yeah, and it's really only very recently that uh, rape became a crime within marriage. There was no such thing as rape within marriage. Uh, but remarkably, uh, it would seem to me, most of the people who contacted you for the first time last year knew the person who had assaulted them or raped them. And 45% of the people who said that they had been abused as children uh, said they were abused by a member of their family. Yes. And that is, I mean, that is the thing to remember as well, that it, that the home for some children wasn't and isn't a safe place. It is the place where abuse can nearly be seen as an entitlement in some ways. There is um, also, there is evidence that uh, abuse can travel down through the generations, that if abuse is seen in one generation, it will be taken up by the next generation as well. But for children, the, uh, for children, the home relatives, the home circle is about half of those uh, abused regularly year on year. But the other point is really important as well, Michael, that the point you make about that most people know the person who carries out the abuse. And that is year after year we see that about 75-80% of, of people know the person who carried out the abuse. Uh, sometimes they know them extremely well, they're a partner, a member of their family, Sometimes they're part of their friend group. Sometimes they're in their workplace. Uh, sometimes they're dating. Mm. And, and, and that is consistent. And that makes sexual crime and sexual violence different to other forms of crime or violence mm. because it's much easier to call out uh, a theft where, uh, where it hasn't been committed by a member mm. of your family, you know, where you don't know the person. Mm. Most crime is committed by a stranger or a near stranger. It may, it may, it may be even deeper than that, Nolan. Uh, it might not just be somebody that you know. It might be somebody that you love. So that uh, on top of the assault, uh, you're dealing with a betrayal, which is going to make the scar even deeper. Exactly. Exactly. That breach of trust is desperate and it makes people question themselves. You know, mm. people tend to say, what did I do wrong? And in, in, we see this the whole time that, that there's um, 
people minimise what happened to them in relation to sexual violence mm. and then they blame themselves. And then the next thing that stops them talking about it, even to the helpline, mm. stops them talking when they, when they feel they won't be believed. Yeah. And that's why we stress again and again, if you go to uh, the helpline, if you go to any of the rape crisis centres, you will find a non-judgmental service. Mm. Nobody's going to judge you. People are going to recognise that the harm that is done is what you're seeking the help for and that even if you are vulnerable even if you have taken a risk and let's face it we all take risks all the time and sometimes that risk leads to harm but even if you've taken a risk somebody else should not have exploited that risk should not have harmed you and you're entitled to help for that harm and if you feel that you are able to do it and that it's uh, the right thing to do that the, the person who carried out that harm needs to be brought sure. to account okay well if you're not believed or if you feel you won't be believed you're going to start questioning your sanity but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Nolene, the ethos of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is that you believe everybody who calls you uh, who says that they've been sexually assaulted on one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. I have to say our conversation this morning reminds me of the conversation we had last year following the publication of uh, the annual report by the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and indeed the conversations we've had after each of the reports over the last seven years since you became the CEO of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. That tenure comes to an end and you're about to step down. Uh, How do you look back on the last seven years? Well, I look back with a lot... I suppose a lot of regret that we weren't able to do more, that we were constrained by um, by funding, by uh, not having enough trained people along the way, by my, maybe by myself not pushing things far enough. So on the one hand, there's regret for the stuff that wasn't done, but on the whole, Michael, and with great thanks to people like yourself and um, a thoughtful uh, debate that has happened in our society over time at the level of society, say, through things like the Me Too movement, uh, the celebrity Belfast rape trial, where the defendants were acquitted, but a real um, conversation and unease grew about the way people were treated by the justice system when they reported sexual crime. By those kind of things, and by the political system, and by the current Minister for Justice, uh, Helen McEntee, from your own parish, as it were, her championing and Minister Simon Harris's championing and the government's championing of uh, reducing tolerance of sexual and domestic and gender-based violence in general. There is a, there's mo- a lot of work has been done. And one of the things I said yesterday at our launch in, in Dublin of the annual report was 20, 40 years ago, when the rape, over 40 years ago, when the Rape Crisis Centre in Dublin was founded and then the others around the country, women were walking on the streets of, of the cities of Ireland saying we want to walk where we want. They were marching, saying we want to walk where we want and wear what we want without being physically or sexually assaulted. And and that movement kind of died away over time. And then it came back and then it died away again. I think this time the movement to eliminate tolerance of sexual violence is now embedded in government policy. Uh, there's a new agency going to be, be set up specifically to deal with domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. And it will be in operation next year. 
I think we will not again be able to push those who have suffered sexual and domestic and gender-based violence. We will not be able to push them back in. We will not be able to tell them to shut up and keep quiet and let those who carry out this kind of harm continue with their work because I think there has been a permanent step forward and that's a relief to me. You know, it's, 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 it's not thanks to me but I am glad to be leaving at a time where things seem to be improving rather than going backwards. Okay. I think you're being somewhat modest, I, I believe, personally, and I mean this, that that would be part of your legacy. Uh, you've been a great advocate for people who've uh, suffered sexual abuse over the last seven years. Uh, we wish you well in your retirement, Nolina. I'm sure uh, you'll have plenty of plans ahead, uh, but you'll be stepping yeah, down. I'll pop as, up somewhere else, Michael. I'm sure you see, will. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if <laughs> Nolina Blackwell didn't. But thank you indeed uh, yeah, for all of much. the conversations we've had over the last seven years. Uh, and thanks to you as well. And thanks to Chris and all your team and Maggie. Thank okay. you. And thank you indeed for thank joining you. us this morning. Nolene Blackwell, the outgoing Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The Citizens' Assembly on Drug Use will meet for the final time this weekend. And obviously the Citizens' Assembly has been going on for the last six months and it was a much-needed debate. Now, all the indications from the Assembly will point to a different approach. We've had an approach uh, that has failed for the last six months, or sorry, the last six decades. So them indications from the Assembly uh, indicate that they will call for decriminalisation and possibly regulation, uh, which I fully support and others will support as well. Because we've had six decades of criminalising people that have simply do- haven't worked. My question to you if them indications and them recommendations from the Assembly indicate a radical approach, what will your government do? Well, I haven't seen the report. The report hasn't been completed. But you seem to be on the inside track. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's... Yeah, but we need to weigh that up. We need, we need to reflect on that too. I'm not so sure anybody should be on inside tracks or orchestrating a particular, orchestrating a particular, orchestrating a particular outcome. Please, Deputy Kenny, should be don't really interrupt. a very objective and uh, open process. I'd just leave that now on the house. But I'd re- read the report. I'm looking forward to the report and we then consider it. That's the Thonishta. Michal Martin uh, responding uh, to Gino Kenny of People Before Profit as Michal Martin suggested he appears to have uh, the inside track. Uh, if he's correct, well, then that means that the Citizens' Assembly will recommend this weekend that drugs will be decriminalised or possibly even regulated. Let's speak to the leader of AIM2, Peter Tobin, a TD for Meath West. Uh, a very good morning to you, Peter Tobin. Have you got the inside track or, like most people, uh, is your expectation in line with Gino Kenny's? Yeah, well, I suppose I don't really have confidence in the Citizens' Assembly process in the first place. Uh, The Citizens' Assembly is an unrepresentative, uh, unelected body, and it's often used by, you know, governments to outsource difficult decisions. And also, they have been proven to be highly susceptible to, you know, influence of activist groups. Uh, Red Sea, one of the most prominent uh, polling companies in the country, has said, that it is impossible to make sure that the 99 people who are in the Citizen Assembly are representative of the people of Ireland. Um, and indeed, there's been many mistakes in terms of the recruitment of people. And also, you know, the Red Sea even admitted that because there's no uh, stipend given to uh, people who attend the Citizen Assembly, it's often populated by, you know, people who are activists 
themselves on particular issues. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is with the problem with, with, with the drug situation is a very serious problem at the moment. Now, the problem I have is that the government, you know, are not doing their job in terms of trying to reduce the scourge of drugs in Ireland. So we have fewer Gardaí on our streets than at any stage over the last 14 years. You know, right now we have two naval ships, you know, one which is tied, tied up in docks on a regular basis to patrol all the seas around this country. So this Ireland is a soft touch in terms of uh, the importation of drugs. And also, you know, one of the arguments for the decriminalization of drugs is that we can then provide a medical response to drug, drug addiction. And I do believe we need a medical response to drug addiction, but there's nothing stopping the government now providing a medical response to drug addiction. So in me, if you're a young person addicted to drugs, there's no um, uh, rehabilitation beds available in County Meath for you to go to. If you're a 17 or 18-year-old uh, hooked on to drugs and you want to come off them, there's no supports literally in County Meath now for, to help you get off drugs. So we could be doing a lot more, first of all, on being tough on drug dealers and, and trying to stop drugs coming into the country and also being you know, helpful to people who are addicted to drugs by making sure that there's proper medical supports available to them. Okay. Um, the can the you, issue around drugs just, is... But, but oh, before, before you go on, can I just ask mm. you if all of that means that your expectation is, yes, that the Citizens' Assembly yeah. will, at a minimum, uh, recommend decriminalising cannabis, let's say, but you don't agree with that, you don't agree with that process, uh, and you believe uh, that we should continue to outlaw drugs... Yeah, so I, 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 the, the, we have a Citizens' Assembly, it's called the Doll, mm. and if you don't like TDs, at least you can get rid of them. Mm. But you've, the people have no control over who's attending. But you're opposed to decriminalising any drugs. I am, and I'll tell you why, because I'm, I'm listening to the medical professionals. I'm, I'm listening to the doctors who are dealing every day with hundreds of people um, who are in psychiatric hospitals as a result of taking uh, drugs, who are dealing with schizophrenia on a daily basis because people have... Uh, been taken for drugs. You know, Dr. Uh, McCarney, there, a adolescent psychiatrist, has stated that there's been an increase in the number of people who are being admitted to psychiatric hospitals in relation to drug taking, even cannabis-related mm. uh, 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 drugs. Very tiny and percentage, though, of the amount of drug users end up with problems like that. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, and, um, and actually, the, the, and those the, the, who do are probably predisposed to, to those conditions. The, 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 the weird thing is that the argument for the decriminalization of drugs temp- usually comes down to that we need a health-based approach. And your point is exactly right, Michael, that most people who take drugs actually don't need a health-based approach. They're just taking drugs on a, on a social uh, basis. So, you know, the, the, the argument even for decriminalizing falls down on the point that you've just actually made there. Um, now, the, 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 the danger on, on this is when you legalize something, it increases the use of the product. So alcohol is, is legal, cigarettes are legal, and as a result, they're normalized, they're consumed in high quantities. And actually, alcohol produces far more danger and damage to society than drugs do. Mm. Uh, and that's because it's legal. A very and interesting in, thing about that, somebody I met yesterday was saying to me, uh, you um, can't go to the off-license after midnight. Uh, but uh, uh, any time of the day or night, uh, you can order drugs and they'll be delivered to your door. That is how prevalent the drugs problem is. Oh, the, the, the drugs problem is very prevalent. There isn't a town or a village in the country that isn't hammered you know, with drugs. And I see towns in Meads where people are dealing openly in public and 
they're taking drugs openly in public um, and there's little or no proper response from the Gardaí in relation to it. But the point I'm saying is if people take the, the, the view that drug taking in general is bad for society. And I think most medics in this country would say that drug taking in general is bad for society. Well then, your job then is to reduce the amount of drugs that are taken in society. The question then is if you legalize it, are more drugs going to be taken or less? And in every country where it's legalized or decriminalized, more drugs are taken and harm goes up. And, and that's the major difficulty here. Um, I do think that we, we have an opportunity still to make sure that we have a two-pronged approach to this. Uh, first of all, a medical-supported uh, uh, approach mm. that will help people who become addicted to drugs. Uh, and also, the government is not doing what it's needed to do in terms of uh, tackling the scourge of drugs uh, through the criminal justice system. It's simply not happening. And you Is know, it possible? I mean, that is the question that many countries have asked themselves. They've concluded it's not, and they've gone this route uh, for the reasons you say, uh, which is this health-based uh, approach, but also because they're fighting a, a losing battle and spending a lot of money fighting that battle. And if you think of uh, the amount of money that is spent on policing and prisons uh, and so on, would it not be possible to use that to provide this medical-based approach to drug use? Well, first of all, as I said earlier, there's nothing stopping medical-based uh, approach now. Well, money. Absolutely nothing. M- money. Well, the, the, the government I mean, is I not... Mean, I mean, you're going to have to... If you're addicted to drugs now, I think at best you're going to have to wait a year to get into rehab. Well, that's absolutely the case, but that's government will. The government has decided not to prioritise funding of drug services. And also remember that in, in, in the United States, in, in Colorado, which is a very, let's say, mature drug market at the moment, uh, where they've decriminalised drugs, and the drugs trade is still mostly in the hands of criminals. And what happens when drugs become legal, actually, is that competition starts on the price of the drug mm. and also the strength of the drug. So drugs have been becoming much stronger and much cheaper in the likes of the Colorado markets. And their A&Es and their hospitals are full of young people mm. who are actually overdosing or, or, or taking drugs. Yeah, so but, decriminalization but, but surely, but surely you're better placed, the objective. But surely you're better placed uh, financially to deal with that because it's not just what you save on policing and prison times. It's also the returns to the exchequer from the sale of these drugs. But again, just to make the point, decriminalization of drugs in, the, in these markets where it's already happened does not prevent... It still remains a, a illegal, illicit subversive trade where there is still a massive policing cost Uh, and and there's still a massive... And drugs drugs will never be strong enough for some people. Uh, The latest thing is this fentanyl thing which is basically an anaesthetic Uh, and uh, I mean after that you're talking about putting yourself down. Uh, You know people will always want more Uh, but the vast majority of people who are using drugs it would seem are doing it uh, for what is considered to be recreational purposes. Yeah, and I know people object to that term but you know you have yeah, people I, smoking joints or a line of coke or whatever it is at the weekend uh, if they're caught they're criminalised young fellas whose lives are ruined they can't leave the country go to the United States that sort of thing it'll uh, go against them in terms of their career path uh, whereas if you decriminalise it uh, at least you'll accept that that's the choice of people and you'll deal okay. with it or try to deal with it. So, so right now, countries across the world 
are either banning cigarette smoking. You have the countries like New Zealand who are phasing out cigarettes. It's saying that each year the age where you can buy cigarettes increases. Um, and they're doing that because of the massive damage to health that's caused, right? And at the same time, people are talking about, okay, let's do that, but we'll legalize the smoking of cannabis, which has exactly the same cancerous carcinogenic effect on the lungs as cigarettes done. So there's a real confusion over uh, uh, people's uh, approach to this. And, you know, secondly... I'm not sure that's correct. Um, Well, first of all, most cannabis is smoked with a a tobacco. uh, I know, but but that's the tobacco. Uh, The cannabis itself is not carcinogenic as far as I know. Well, I would would argue with that, to be honest. Like, I can't imagine it's healthy to burn anything and and take the lung... Because lungs are not designed to, to... uh, take smoke into them, and um, no, you know, but I, I, I mean, uh, there is no scientific evidence that it's carcinogenic. Well, first of all, the smoking of joints contains carci- carcinogenic it, uh, compounds. You're talking about you know tobacco. That. Yeah, well, obviously, like most people who smoke hash mix it with tobacco in this country. But you're talking about the tobacco that is carcinogenic. I mean, you, okay, can, you, you can consume cannabis uh, by eating it. I, I saw uh, an article in the Irish Times not so long ago which had a, a photograph of a bakery. Uh, I'm not sure which American state it was in, but, uh, I mean, the menu was just unbelievable. It was endless. Uh, the amount of products that they were selling in this bakery uh, that were designed to eat and get stoned with. Yeah, listen, you can have it in yogurt, you could have it yeah. in your Christmas cake. There's nothing like, okay? carcinogenic the about saying, it The then. point I'm saying to you, Michael, is most people smoke in tobacco-related drugs, uh, tobacco-related joints. So we have to be serious mm. and, and honest with people here. Most marijuana is consumed uh, with, um, mm. with, with tobacco, so, uh, and that's the truth. And all I'm saying, and it's a very simple point, if you legalize it, it becomes really difficult for parents to tell their kids, don't take it. Because parents, kids can come around and say, well, actually, ma, you know, or dad, it's legal. You know, it's, there's nothing wrong with this. The state have given basically a, a form of, uh, you know, permission for me to use this. And it's much easier for me or for any parents to be able to try and convince a child to stay away from drugs. And remember, you know, 90% of people don't take drugs in this country. But only 40% of people don't drink regularly in this country. When you legalize something, it, basically, it becomes much harder to reduce consumption of it, first of all. Mm. Uh, and, second of, and second of all, increased use equals increased harm. It's not that difficult to understand. Okay. Increased harm means more young people going to hospital with psychiatric uh, illnesses, uh, more people uh, uh, becoming addicted, uh, and more breakdown in society as people are not able to do their jobs they're not you know drug driving is on the increase mm-hmm. at the moment at a significant Dreadful. rate yeah, at the moment yeah, yeah, killing absolutely. people you yeah. know? so okay listen I, ha- I have to leave it there i think it's a conversation that's going to continue for many months uh, and will really kick off next week uh, after the recommendations from the citizens assembly thank you though for joining us in advance uh, to discuss uh, the pros and cons if you like certainly the cons from your perspective and uh, for your time this morning that's Patrick Tobin, the leader of AIM2, uh, a TD for Meadwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. And just a, a couple of uh, comments before we go to uh, the headlines. Uh, Deirdre says anybody who rapes another person should get jail. In fact, she says they should never get out. What's wrong with some of uh, these people? Uh, well, I think uh, Margaret uh, will understand what you're talking about, Deirdre, because she says, Michael, I'm one of uh, those people who rang uh, the rape crisis centre. 
centre. Uh, a wonderful description this morning by Nolene Blackwell when she referenced the broken leg in comparison to never forgetting trauma and memory. Let me add, if I can, by giving some advice. If this happens a person under the age of consent, uh, especially children, it's vital that you assure the young person it is not their fault, especially when it comes to family members who perpetrated the abuse. She's a wonderful person, Nolan Blackwell, says Margaret. Thank you indeed uh, for your text. Uh, another uh, text that comes to us uh, from Peter to say, well done to President Higgins for calling out Ursula von der Leyen and her one-sided rhetoric uh, when she went to Israel, presuming to represent everybody in Europe. The President of Ireland has consistently reflected our views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, condemning the horrific attack by Hamas on defenceless civilians in Israel on one hand, but also a genuine empathy for the suffering of Palestinian civilians caught in the crossfire. The forced displacement of an entire city with disrupted water and electricity supplies is a distressing reality unfolding before our eyes. President Higgins stands firm in advocating for the rights of innocent civilians on both sides and well done to him says Peter. Thank you. If you've been in touch, our phone number is 041 983 You can text or WhatsApp a message to us on 086 1800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, President Joe Biden has been addressing uh, the nation, uh, speaking to the people of uh, the United States from the Oval Office. It's only the second time uh, that President Biden has made an address from uh, the Oval Office uh, and it has been one that he has used to express his solidarity and support for both Israel and and Ukraine against their enemies, that is, of course, Hamas and Russia. I think we can hear a little bit from the president now and we'll hear what he had to say about America's support for Israel. We must make sure that they have what they need to protect their people today and always. The security package I'm sending to Congress and asking Congress to do is an unprecedented commitment to Israel's security that will sharpen Israel's qualitative military edge, which we've committed to, the qualitative military edge. We're going to make sure Iron Dome continues to guard the skies over Israel. We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. Look, at the same time, President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can. The people of Gaza urgently need food, water, and medicine. Yesterday, in discussions with the leaders of Israel and Egypt, I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. If Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment, these shipments, we're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. As I said in Israel, as hard as it is, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. Israel and Palestinians equally deserve to live in safety, dignity, and peace. 
President Joe Biden, part of his address to the United States from uh, the Oval Office last night, uh, expressing his unwavering support for Israel. Uh, I believe uh, that there's been an attack on a U.S. Um, ship uh, this morning and uh, fears as a result of that that this already terrible conflict could spread further and there's been so many lives lost at this stage. More than 1,300 people slaughtered in Israel, including at least 32 American citizens. Scores of innocents, from infants to the elderly grandparents, Israelis, Americans taken hostage. As I told the families of Americans being held captive by Hamas, we're pursuing every avenue to bring their loved ones home. As president, there is no higher priority for me than the safety of Americans held hostage. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. In Israel, I saw people who are strong, determined, resilient, and also angry, in shock, and in deep, deep pain. I also... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spoke with President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority and reiterated the United States remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away. Like so many other, I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis. We mourn every innocent life lost. We can't ignore humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. All right, that is uh, President Joe Biden talking about innocent Palestinians but at, at the same time as you've been hearing this morning the President in his address called for billions of dollars to be given to the Israeli army so that they can continue uh, with what they say is uh, their defence of Israel, which appears to be uh, crossing into Palestine uh, and well, God knows what, but there is great fear for the innocent civilians in Gaza today. Uh, and uh, you'd have heard uh, that commander tell Israeli troops yesterday that they can expect to be in Gaza.
today. Uh, let's hope that that isn't the case because the thoughts are just not worth thinking about. President Biden was talking about America's place in the world and the importance that it has in terms of world security as well. Earlier this year, I boarded Air Force One for a secret flight to Poland. There I boarded a train with blacked out windows for a 10-hour ride each way to Kiev to stand with the people of Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of their brave fight against Putin. And I'm told I was the first American to enter a war zone not controlled by the United States military since President Lincoln. With me was just a small group of security personnel and a few advisors. But when I exited that train and met Zelensky, President Zelensky, I didn't feel alone. I was bringing with me the idea of America, the promise of America, to the people who are today fighting for the same things we fought for 250 years ago. Freedom, independence, self-determination. As I walked through Kiev with President Zelensky, with air raid sirens sounding in the distance, I felt something I've always believed, more strongly than ever before. America is a beacon to the world. Still, still. Whereas my friend Madeleine Albright said, the indispensable nation. Tonight, there are innocent people all over the world who hope because of us, who believe in a better life because of us, who are desperate not to be forgotten by us and are waiting for us. But time is of the essence. I know we have our divisions at home. We have to get past them. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In moments like these, we have to remind, we have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. The United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. That's uh, President Joe Biden speaking in the Oval Office uh, to the people of uh, America last night. Some comments coming to us uh, this morning. Hilary in Rathoth, thank you indeed uh, for your text. She says, drugs kill. Why legalise something that is so deadly? Have we lost the plot? Thanks, Hilary, as I say, for your text. Thanks, too, to Susan, who says, alcohol is a carcinogenic. Cannabis is not. Paterdopine is not correct. Most people don't smoke cannabis with tobacco. Most people who use cannabis have more sense, and it's about time that we legalised the weed. Brian in touch with us uh, this morning. Thanks, Brian, for your call. Brian on the roads. Uh, and uh, he says listening to the programme yesterday about uh, the delays and people getting a test why not give them a driving licence without a test Uh, there wouldn't be much different than a lot of people who are already on the roads Uh, you'd wonder if they ever sat a test because of uh, how appalling their driving is there's so many people who don't seem to understand what road safety is and the consequences of not understanding that Today, he says, for example, there's endless amounts of cars on the road without lights. There should be lights on on every car, regardless of the weather, on the brightest, sunniest of days, never mind the darkest, wettest of days. Look at all of the people who don't believe in indicating whatever the problem is. Is it that noisy tick-tock noise in their car that gets on their nerves? Were they not taught during their driving lessons that they should be indicating their 
intention on the road so that the cars uh, behind them and in front of them know what they are intending to do and indeed pedestrians won't walk out in front of them not knowing that they're about to turn around a corner or for that matter he says there's so many people who are on the roads who have driving licence allegedly who don't know how to use lanes just take the motorway for example where people stay on the outside all of the time never moving in and don't get me started on roundabouts where people are too afraid to use them properly and stay on the outside lane causing great danger to others then if you're inside uh, any town in this country look at all of the drivers in fact he says the majority of people who drive around the towns in what is a 50k maximum speed zone are doing 60 kilometres an hour. Why is it that that law is being flaunted? Why is it that nobody is cracking down on this speeding which is happening all of the time and then there's the mobile phones. Everybody is on their phone all of the time. You can see it all of the time when you're driving or uh, you're uh, at traffic lights and people uh, don't seem to take off and that kind of thing. Uh, There's no point in worrying about driving licences if people get a licence and then they get on the road and then they throw the rules of the road uh, and indeed everything that they've been taught about road safety out the window. Thank you indeed, Brian, for those very strong feelings. If you want to make comment on our programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's 11 years since uh, Father Tony Flannery was banished by his beloved church. Indeed, I would imagine there's many people listening to us uh, this morning who would have uh, seen the Mishnok documentary on TG Carr who are very much aware of this fact and how Tony Flannery is now tired after the 11 years fighting uh, this decision that was made against him in Rome. Tony Flannery is on the line and a very good morning to you, Tony. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I got the impression towards the end of uh, the Mishnok uh, documentary uh, that you've got to a stage now where you've given up the fight. Would that be correct? Uh, Michael, the way I put it in the programme is that I'm tired of it all. It's been going on for so long now. And uh, as I said, uh, it's so many people have tried to help. Uh, and I'm very conscious of all that. I've had enormous support back through the 11, nearly 12 years now. And uh, the various church institutions have been approached but without any success. And what I've found over the years is that while all this is going on and while people are making further efforts and there are further delegations got here, there and everywhere, you still continue to live through it and there's a certain, in spite of yourself, hope building up and then it's crushed again. And that hasn't been good for me and I'd say it's taken its toll of me. And like I'm 76 now, and at this stage, I think the easiest thing for me is to just leave the whole thing 
I'm not going to get back into ministry. It doesn't matter at this stage whether I do or not. Mm. The one thing I say is I'd like to get uh, an acknowledgement that this, uh, the process by which I was dismissed was totally unjust, but I won't get that. So <laughs> that's where I'm at, Michael, mm. if that makes any sense to you. Yeah. You don't know who accused you of wrongdoing. Um, you don't have any appeals process. Uh, you... Uh, didn't have a- any uh, direct um, uh, uh, direction as such. Uh, in yes. fact, your order was told how to deal with you, to stand you down. I- I- and I-, I could sense from what you had to say about the Redemptorists in the programme that that was particularly hurtful for you. Well, you see, now, and I don't want to criticise the Irish Redemptorists because they have been very supportive of me. Uh, the international government of the Redemptress was, I think, and I'd say most the people who know the story would agree with me, was very weak. Um, they didn't make any effort to stand up against the CDF at the time, the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith. Now, that was still in the time of Pope Benedict. Uh, if it was a year later, it wouldn't have happened at all because Francis had taken over and one of the first things Francis did was to say we want no more of that. People sending in accusations, the CDF uh, making judgments on people and announcing to jail. Francis cut all that out and that hasn't been happening now for the last 10 years. But my situation still remains the same. Um, I was... Uh, about a week ago, there was a, a great um, Augustinian theologian called Gabriel Daly, whom I knew and who actually was a great defender of mine in his time. Uh, Gabriel died recently. I missed the funeral, so I went up to the Mons Mind in uh, Ballyboden, and I was chatting with some of the Augustinians. And of course, Gabriel was a theologian and a very outspoken and in his writing and all of that, uh, calling for reform. At the age of 90, he wrote a marvellous book called The Church, always in need of reform. And uh, people were saying, how did he survive without getting sanctioned or without getting sidelined? And I was discussing that with a few of the Augustinians when I was up there at the Mons Mind. And they outlined the situation where the Augustinian superiors took a very strong line with anybody who made any objections to Gabriel. In other words, they carefully protected him all through. Now, I didn't get that from my Redemptorist general government, Mm. and I would be disappointed with that. People will know if uh, they watch the documentary. In fact, uh, I'm sure uh, there's an awful lot of people listening to us uh, this morning who will already know uh, that you were banished because of your views on women in the church, on contraception and on same-sex relationships and how people in those relationships are, are, Indeed, are treated. Indeed, and also on issues around priesthood and the future of priestly ministry and all of that, yeah. Uh, what fascinated me most though uh, about uh, the documentary was that this goes back a a long time with you. You felt this way for a a long time Uh, and uh, you spoke about the reception that John Paul got at the Youth Mass in Galway in 1979 which was tremendous 
the, yes. world, the, the, the Ireland was uh, euphoric, uh, but you were very concerned by what you were hearing. I was, you see, I was a young priest at the time. I was only a couple of years ordained, <clears throat> and I had uh, trained for the priesthood in the era after the Second Vatican Council with all the sense of hope and something new and change coming. And most of my generation of priests would be the same. That was part of what uh, motivated us to become priests. But listening to John Paul in 1979, and he was only Pope for less than a year, about a year at that stage, I could see by what he said in Galway, and even more so by the tone of his voice uh, and the sort of dogmatic declarations that he was using, that we the age of change and reform was going to be reversed. Now, of course, the next 30 years showed that very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But I got a sense of that that day, and that's why I left um, Bellybrit mm. that morning and we're glad uneasy. and we're glad not to take the opportunity that you had to shake his hand to shake <laughs> yeah. his hand yeah. Mm. yeah yeah I was never a fan of John Paul uh, uh, at any stage in his career right he, he was always for me was the Catholic Church ever for you because I, I, I'd have thought any member of the Catholic Church uh, would have um, unquestionable admiration or faith in any pontiff? Oh, I don't think so. Uh, that would never be... It, that certainly isn't true at the moment, uh, Michael, because <clears throat> an enormous amount of people are very critical of Pope Francis, and I love Pope Francis, and I'm an enormous admira- admirer of Pope Francis. Um, <clears throat> see, we've lived through such extraordinarily changing times in society and the world generally mm. and in the church. The I know, church but you're, you're, you're a very <laughs> nice man. I don't mean to patronise you. I just, I, can't, know, no, I, I just can't imagine you not wanting to shake somebody's hand, let alone would, John I, Paul. I, no, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have made too much about that. Uh, just as it happened, you see, there were a whole load of concelebrants and there was a passageway between the concelebrants that the Pope came to the altar and went back from the altar. And just by coincidence, I my seat happened to be right at the side of that passageway. There was a little barrier, a piece of rope or something like that. And he was coming along, <clears throat> and priests were holding out their hands to shake his hands, like they do with the golfers on the big golfing days. And <clears throat> there was an older priest behind me, and he was really trying to reach over me so that he could get his hand out to shake John Paul's right. hand. Yeah. And okay. just at that stage, I, I, I came to me, I, I, I'll happily cede my place to him, which I did, and yeah. I stood back. Okay. It happened like that. Yeah. Spur of the moment. I, I imagine most people like me who watched uh, the T.G. Carr documentary were very taken aback uh, by how you, you felt after being refused permission um, uh, to celebrate um, your uh, sister's funeral. Yeah, your sister Geraldine. Yeah, uh, but you, but 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 you did. Um, you gave the funeral mass uh, in her house. Was it? I we did it. We did it in the house. Mm. Yes, uh, and it was during COVID times. And actually, it turned out to be a beautiful occasion because 
all the neighbours and the friends could gather in the lawn outside. She had a, a sunroom, a glass, you know, the what sunrooms, and we had the coffin laid out there and the mass. I celebrated the mass there, and we had speakers and all of that, and it worked out grand. But it was just the way that the Archbishop at the time he's now retired. Mm. He, he, when I looked for permission to celebrate the funeral in the cathedral in June. He was away. The administrator said to me he'd have to check with the archbishop. Uh, he came back the next day to me on the phone to say the archbishop said, no, mm. I couldn't celebrate the Mass. That we were welcome to bring the Magellan to the cathedral, but I would not be up on the altar. It would be one of the local priests who would celebrate the funeral mass. Mm. And Geraldine had insisted to me many times because Geraldine's death came slowly. She had a congenital heart condition. And she, she all the time said, no matter what happens, you ought to celebrate my mass wherever it is. So and you did, you did, and, uh, and, did. and, uh, and uh, as you say, you've had such support from ordinary Catholics, and uh, that was very evident uh, for your 75th birthday, wasn't it, when you celebrated Mass? In a, uh, 70th, they call, 70th. Uh, so, so they called it a, a rebel Mass, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, what, that's what my stuff. friend and after we called it but, a but rebel Mass. It was a great old day in my, home pa- in my home parish in the local hall. Mm, we had yeah, a great day. You, you, the rebel priest and all of that stuff. Um, but having said that, I, I, I think it's safe to say that somewhere between 90 and 99% of Roman Catholics in this country would agree with your views on contraception. I wouldn't put figures on the other issues, but I'd say most people agree with your uh, views on women in the church and the priesthood and indeed on same-sex relationships. Uh, it doesn't bode well for the church, does it? irony of the whole thing, and, and for me a very big irony, is with the synodal, synodal process that has been gone on, going on for the last two years, and is now reaching its zenith at the big meeting in Rome, all the issues that they, uh, the ones you outlined and others that I was complained about, they're all now in the floor of the Senate being openly discussed. So like so much has changed and Francis has opened up discussion. Uh, so that's why the anomaly of me being still suspended for views that mm. are now commonly held right across the church and discussed at the highest level. It's crazy, really. But okay. nobody in authority in church in Ireland or in the Vatican are willing seemingly to do anything about it. Maybe they don't like me. Maybe I've been too brash in my time. Okay. I, I don't know. Michael, I don't anyway. know either. Um, I, I do know that I'm always, uh, or I always feel privileged uh, to speak to you. Uh, I wish we had more time today, Tony, uh, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people would like to see the Mishnok documentary if they it, haven't. It is being repeated again next Sunday night. Okay, and I'm told... On TG Great, and I'm told it's actually on the TG Cahar player as well, and, oh, to be, sure uh, and to be repeated then next Sunday night. Tony, yeah. a, a pleasure as always. Thank you as very always. much indeed. Thank uh, you very thanks much. Thanks very much, Michael. That's uh, Redemptorist priest Father Tony Flannery. 
The Ombudsman for Children's Office has published a special report on uh, the safety and welfare of children in direct provision. It's uh, the first report of its kind uh, that has been laid before the Oireachtas and uh, the Ombudsman for Children is calling on the government uh, to make sure that children who are seeking international protection grow up in safe secure environments. Let's speak to Nuala Ward, who's uh, Director of Investigations with uh, the Ombudsman for Children. Good morning to you, Nuala, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme. There's obviously problems. You've made a a number of recommendations, three key recommendations, uh, in fact, uh, to ensure that children in this country are safe and secure. Maybe you talk us through them, if you would, please. Yes, of course. Thank you, Michael, for having me on. Um, so back in 2021, we did an investigation into uh, IPATH, um, which is International Protection and Accommodation Service, and TUSLA, the Child and Family Agency, just about the care and protection of children in the direct provision system. And at the time, we were really worried. Uh, we went around the country, we met with children, we sat in hotels and caravan parks and former convents and listened to children and families tell about their stories about living uh, in those places. So we heard about chronic overcrowding, inconsistent heating, poor nutritional content of food and a general uh, reluctance to complain and a fear just because they were worried about that if they did make a complaint it might result in adverse um, treatment while they were in Ireland. So at the time we made a series of of over 12 recommendations to both IPAS and TUSLA and they fully accepted it. So what we basically said at the core was that the direct provision system didn't have the best interests of children at its heart and didn't protect and promote the rights of children. So two years on, we're very aware the landscape has uh, changed entirely. And, you know, as you know, Michael, thousands have fled to our country to try and get refuge. Um, But what we are really concerned about now is that things have gotten worse. So yesterday, the report we published was a special report, and we focused on three recommendations whereby we asked the government that they must cease or plan to cease the use of private commercial hotels for the care of children, that there must be a robust quality assurance system in place just to know for us that these children are being cared for safely and well. And finally, that we are obliged to do vulnerability assessments of children just to make sure if they've got any special needs that needs to be met. That was the purpose of yesterday. Right. Uh, Maybe you'd uh, expand on on that last point, uh, because that was agreed in 2021 that children would be assessed within 30 days of applying for international protection. But it hasn't worked out too well, has it? No, it hasn't. And this is an obligation that is that we must do. It is an international and European requirement uh, because children um, who seek asylum, by their very nature, are vulnerable. But uh, what we are obliged to do is to see if they have any special reception needs. So that means whether or not a child may have suffered trauma from their journey, trauma from their country of origin, if they have any mental health needs, if they have any disability needs, and so that we are able to identify them at an early stage. But as of uh, May this year, only 464 children had received a vulnerability assessment Mm. and of that would you believe over 203 were actually identified as having more specific needs and were addressed to a social worker but there's over 2,500 children um, arriving uh, in Ireland so it's Mm. a very small number Mm. and so um, so some of them uh, we've been learning uh, they've been coming from uh, terrible places in the world uh, and may require a, a lot of uh, attention and aid. But there's other vulnerabilities, isn't there? Uh, I mean, some of these children could have been trafficked here for prostitution. 
Yes, and again, I mean, there's a lot of work that Ireland, there's a lot of focus now on Ireland at the moment because we are not very robust at identifying children that may have been trafficked. So that is a very significant piece of work that has to take place, and you're absolutely right. That's one of the most horrific crimes that can be done against a child, to be trafficked for reasons of sexual or labour exploitation. And, you're, and we cannot plan to meet their needs until we plan to identify who they are because you can imagine there'd be huge fear for a child to tell a grown-up adult in another country maybe with a different language about what had happened to them. Mm. Um, We've heard these complaints many times over and over uh, the 20 years or so that direct provision has been a way of dealing with asylum seekers in this country. And there have been many concerns over those years. Those concerns have heightened because of the amount of people who are seeking refuge in this country over the course of the last couple of years, predominantly because of uh, the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, but your report is somewhat different, is it not? Uh, because uh, you lay this report uh, before the Oireachtas under the Child First legislation. Well, we've, we laid it under um, our, it's a special report under our legislation and it's the first time it's ever been done in the history of the office. So that's over 20 years. And the reason that the Ombudsman decided to take this action is because when we did the, it's what it's the report that we lay when we, uh, the Ombudsman is unhappy with the progress in implementing some recommendations from a statutory investigation. And you're right, when we published the report in 2021, there was a complete commitment and acceptance to our investigation. A suite of actions were put in place. But now, from all the visits we've gone round to the different centres, the children we have met, the complaints we continue to receive, we have the Ombudsman made the significant decision that to lay this report yesterday to highlight the continuing crisis and the impact it's having on children. These three recommendations were the ones that we felt, out of the 12, were having the most profound adverse effect on children. Okay, so I take it the government should be taking your recommendations, your report, very, very seriously. Uh, it's a, an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Social Democrat Jennifer Whitmore. And I, I think we can hear the response uh, to Deputy Whitmore from the Tánaiste. This is what Michal Martin had to say. I haven't read the Ombudsman's report yet, uh, but I will. My initial observations is that we need, again, balance and perspective here. When over 100,000 people come into the country in one year, you're not going to get uh, a response that meets with conditions of normal times. A war has been raged on Ukraine. We have facilitated the arrival into the country of 73,000 Ukrainians. Sorry, we've housed 73,000. Uh, we didn't have 73,000 houses. Just let me make right and, and, and we've responded to a lot of those commitments. But I'm just making that general point. Like, there seems to be a view abroad that maybe... You know, you, you can do everything at once, but when, when so many, when and I, we, we did the right thing, and Europe did the right thing to facilitate fleeing Ukrainians coming from war. We did the right thing, but there are limitations to how well you can do it. That's uh, Tanisha Michal Martin speaking yesterday. Nula, I, I'm not sure how you heard that, uh, but I, I think the Tanisha is saying we're doing the best we can, and you can't expect us to do any better than that. Um, as I say, I'm not sure how you heard it, but how do you react to what Michal Martin said? 
Um, I would like to hope that when Michal does get a chance to read our report, he will see how balanced we have been. We are very aware, and we have reflected that strongly in a report about the pressures. We have sat opposite amazingly dedicated civil servants, volunteers, staff and centres who have told us about the pressures that we are under. And so we have a great insight, thankfully, because we are out there and we are seeing firsthand what is going on. Um, But at the end of the day, we have to also remember we're paying over 40 million euros of taxpayers' money every single month into these commercial providers. And at a very basic level, we need to know that we are getting what we're paying for. That these children, that there's very basic safeguarding, uh, children first, that all staff should be vetted. We didn't find that when we went out. That there should, all, everyone should be trained in children first. That there should be child safeguarding statements. For example, TUSLA recently audited child safeguarding statements in 38 centres. And for people who may not know, child safeguarding statements really is one of the most basic safeguards to ensure a service has consider their child protection obligations. And this wasn't even in place in the majority of these centres. So I think, as, as, as I said, if we're paying over €40 million Euro a month as taxpayers, I think we are entitled to some sense of assurance from the departments and from the state that we are getting what we're paying for and these children and families are being well looked after. Mm, that's half a billion in a year. It's an incredible amount of money. Nula, Isn't it I, incredible? Oh, it's unbelievable. Nula, I have to leave it there, though, for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Take that's care, Nula Ward, Director of Investigations for the Ombudsman for Children. Michael Reed on LMFM. Marsha, um, workers of Tara Mines and job seekers are at risk of losing a day's pay due to the fact that they're getting a 65-euro retainer from the company. At the time they were laid off, Minister Humphrey Stein signed a statutory instrument to allow them to receive 65-euro plus the full job seekers. That statutory in- instrument had a 13-week limit and that 13 weeks is up. But of course the workers are not back to work. Will you ensure that the statutory instrument is extended so these workers and their families are not forced into even further hardship? Thank the Deputy for raising the issue. I will discuss this with the Minister for Social Protection in terms of um, the continuation. Is I will talk to the Minister in terms of... All right, that's uh, Tony Jimmy Hall Martin uh, responding to Sinn Féin TD from Mead West, Johnny uh, Girk in the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak to John Regan, who's a SIP2 sector organiser. A very good morning to you, John. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. morning. Uh, we'll talk about those welfare payments uh, in a, a moment, uh, but maybe you could tell us a, a little bit about the meeting that you had with Belyden yesterday. What's the latest? Well, we had uh, quite, um, I suppose, a few hours of a meeting yesterday and it didn't uh, really bridge the gap that needed to be bridged. And that is uh, the two issues that we need to progress um, very speedily is the recommencement date of um, the mine uh, and also uh, a voluntary redundancy package for the workers that are been left in limbo and no sign uh, from the company uh, identifying any date which just has to workers can't be left in this situation with the financial uh, constraints that they're under um, and um, we're pressing on with this it talks broke down yesterday mm. and we're going into the WRC uh, and uh, we're referring that in today so they can't tell you that uh, at the latest it'll be the end of next year or the year after or next month they can't give any indication in other words well, I don't think it's a case of can't or it's more about won't. They they are not prepared to, uh, you know, commit themselves to a date uh, and then uh, have to um, roll back on it. That's their concern. Uh, we have said to them that 
all the things that has to be uh, discussed and progressed uh, should be done uh, under the normal industrial relations way of nothing is agreed until all is agreed, which uh, should identify a date for and give enough comfort to get a date uh, that is that we're all targeting to open up the mine on. Uh, but the company isn't prepared to buy into that. And are some of your members telling you that they'd accept a redundancy package if one was available to them? We know that there is people um, so hard um, hit with finances and supports. Uh, you know, the different packages and benefits that people would get for being unemployed are different for than the ones that the Tara workers are faced with because they're laid off. They're not able to access such uh, um, grants as the SUSE grant. Uh, that's not available to them and, the, and, and there's difficulties around that. So there's a lot of hidden... Um, costs and financial uh, pressures on on families uh, that a redundancy package reluctantly people would want to uh, have to go down that road, uh, but they you know they have to get finances somewhere, and the company needs to be held you know for the long service that some of these workers would have uh, committed to and the production and uh, return that the company got from all of that. So it is uh, a requirement that now has to be progressed and we will progress it all the way on to the Labour Court uh, and we'll see where we, we are at that stage. Are people finding it difficult to get alternative employment? Uh, we did hear from one of the workers who said to us, at least, uh, that when they go to look for a job and they say that they've been laid off from Tara Mines, uh, they're not interested because they think you'll only be here for a few weeks or a few months a, a, at most. Yeah, that is a real uh, problem for workers that have the skills to take up the employment that they, you know, that they're uh, skilled at in construction in particular. Uh, and uh, there is a scarcity of labour in, in construction. But yet, even layoff doesn't attract the employers in construction to uh, take on these workers. And there is a real problem there. Um, and regrettably, it's feeding into the financial impact on the families. Mm. Uh, the Tarnister was non-committal in uh, his response and said he'd refer it to Heather Humphreys. Uh, but uh, ha- have you any better understanding of uh, this uh, €65 Euro and uh, that it won't impact on welfare payments? Yeah, look, we've, we've indicators that the Minister is going to make an announcement on this very soon. Uh, we have highlighted the fact that we are now 13 weeks in our 14th week. Uh, something has to be moved. The statutory instrument that she uh, activated uh, for the 13 weeks, uh, it should be simple enough to extend it for a further 13 weeks. And we have reason to believe that she is going to do that. Uh, and therefore, the current €65 Euro retention payment will hold its value. Uh, provided the Minister does come out and make that announcement. Mm. Uh, and for how long uh, will that be the situation well, for people? I mean, that's the next be, thing. Mm. We believe it will be for the 13 weeks and right. uh, if the minus and opened up after that, we'll be again lobbying to get a further extension if that's required. But okay. like, look, it tends mm. to suggest that we're surrendering the need for a recommencement date. It isn't the case. Yeah. We need a recommencement date and we will be pressurising that uh, very much so. Mm. In relation to the social um, job security or pay-related job seekers uh, legislation that's coming in, we, we have a conference or a meeting 
for the public uh, representatives on Tuesday evening, um, the 24th at 7pm in the Danshaw Centre. And we intend to enlighten all the public representatives as what, what is required here. Mm. And immediate legislation brought forward because that legislation will not help the miners if it's no. left uh, you know, indefinitely the way the minister is talking. Mm, well, is it not too late already as it stands? This is that if you're laid off, uh, that you'd be paid up to €450 Euro in welfare, isn't it? Yeah, and well, the figure hasn't been set yet, but yes, it is late. Uh, it should have been emergent. There should have been an equivalent emergency legislation brought in, the same as we did for COVID and these workers and others around the country that are finding more and more losing their jobs or been laid off. Uh, they need the average wage uh, by way of the job seekers, um, um, you know, payments. So uh, we're going to be pressing hard on that and hopefully all the uh, public representatives, ministers and TDs will attend next Tuesday and hopefully they will start lobbying uh, and moving the government into a place where uh, this legislation happens sooner rather than later. Right, that's at 7 o'clock in the Dan Shaw Centre in Navin uh, for those interested. Uh, By the sounds of things, John, uh, you're hoping uh, at this stage uh, that people will be able to get over Christmas, if you're talking about another 13 weeks uh, where uh, this um, situation is uh, allowed that the company can continue to pay the €65 Euro and won't impact on welfare. Has has the company agreed to another 13 weeks? Yes, they've extended the agreement that we uh, reached in the WRC uh, and that payment is secured 65 The problem with this is that if the job seekers um, statutory instrument that the minister introduced is not extended, they will lose a full day's pay, uh, social um, welfare payment. And that's approximately 44 euros. Uh, And uh, that leaves them with the 65, the true value of the 65 euros would be 21 euros. Uh, So it's a major impact on uh, even what is low uh, income Uh, that they've been receiving for the 13 weeks, it's going to drop down. But again, as I said, I'm reasonably uh, assured that this legislation and the statutory instrument is going to be extended for a further 13 weeks. John, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. John Regan, SIP2 Sector Organiser. That's it for today and this week from our programme, Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme on Monday at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.